Welcome back to the Cock and Bull Podcast. Nathan, do you remember where you were when the Fausts disappeared for two months? Um, pardon? I don't, is the reason I ask, because I recorded the last episode uh, uh, in your home, and uh, then I, I blacked out. I see what this is. And then um, I woke up in a deep, dank cellar. There were just, there were cuffs laying around. There was an old mattress. I realized it was the cellar to the actual home I live in, so I just went upstairs. But oh, oh, okay. I thought we were going to say that's that's actually just a couple feet away from where we record. We record in the pod cave, and then there is the, uh, the Unmentionables dungeon next to that. Which I wish was a, a goof, but it, it really isn't. There, it's an uncomfortable basement I live in. July eleventh, nineteen ten. John Paul Stapp was the son to a pair of American Baptist missionaries living in Salvador de Bahia in Brazil. Oh, good. Okay, so let's let's set the table here for for anyone that hasn't done this before. Uh, Spencer's going to tell me an awful story, and he started by taking uh, white Baptists, taking them out of America and putting them in a place they're absolutely not welcome. And that always sets the tone for a great, great if if there's any justice in the world, he will meet the same fate as the guy that tried to visit the North Sentinelese. But I don't think we're going to get that lucky. He was the eldest of four children. Good pair of Baptist parents, but they could be shooting for higher numbers. Yeah, no, the four ain't that weird. Like, we're, you're bare, almost the youngest of four children. Like, what are you saying here? Almost. Almost. And you are the eldest of four children. So I his am, parents were both teachers. And they decided to save some scratch and well deserved social interaction by homeschooling him. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah, that, there is nowhere that ends poorly. He was homeschooled until the age of 12, at which point he moved to Brownwood, Texas. A few years ahead of the game, he jumps into high school straight away and graduates with ease. Okay, so he's a bit of a he, he's a bit of a nerd. He comes from some south. He from some Brazil, so he shows up in Texas speaking Portuguese. Now I don't know a lot about Texas in the 1920s, but I got to assume that they weren't the progressive haven um, that they're now <laughs> that they now are here in 2020. So they may have not looked as fondly on this gentleman. We don't know. Brownwood really could have been the uh, the liberal bastion of free thought. Oh, you think now, so you think Brownwood was Austin circa 1920? I'm saying if this guy got in at age this Doogie Hauser jumped in at age 12 speaking Portuguese and yeah, graduated if, with ease. If there's one thing I know that uh, that my high school would have would have received really well, it's a weird white guy speaking a slightly foreign language that you can't place who's showing you up at every turn and a couple years younger than you. That would have gone over no lockers with that man have been thrown in. He wanted to be a writer at first, but he had a nightmarish encounter with an infant cousin around the age of 18. <laughs> okay, what did this eldritch infant do to him? It's not what the infant did to him. It's what the infant did to itself. Uh, the oh. baby lacking any and all self-preservation had crawled into a burning fireplace. Um, wh why? Why? Why is the question? I want everyone to understand that this is a comedy podcast. Ostensibly! iTunes required me to check a box, and I did say comedy. Was that a mistake? We don't really know yet. I think I think empirically we do at this point, but there's no going back. Ah, more evidence is required. Stapp was there for the next 63 hours, 18 years old, um, trying in vain to nurse this cousin back to health. Where were the adults? That's a very good question, actually. What were the parents up to that they were like, how? all right, no, John's in charge. <laughs> how many hours? Uh, 63 hours. Okay, so a couple of days. How old was he? 18. 
All right. I guess in the 20s, an 18-year-old is basically the closest you're going to get to an adult in the room, and he is a Doogie Hauser, so I guess you leave him with a child. But and- I'm just going to say, as someone that has a child, if 18-year-old Spencer had been like, hey, I want to take care of the babe, I'd have been like, get fucked. Well, this might have been before the 40-hour work week as well, so they probably were just about to clock off before all was said and done. This makes sense. It is it is early 20th century America. They probably are just doing a long 63-hour shift down at the meatpacking plant. And they're going to come home to some bad news. That their baby has gone all Hellraiser? Yeah, sounds like it. And it was the first time that John had seen anyone die. He knew then and there that he wanted to become a doctor. Oh, good. That's... That sort of deranged reason. because That's like a Batman origin story for a doctor. Uh, and if there's one thing I've learned about these shitty origin stories for superheroes is that if you poke at them a little bit, they become a little psychotic. And this one is starting off great. So he goes to Baylor University and gets his bachelor's in English. Spencer, did you just pronounce Baylor University as Baylor, like some sort of weird English knight? You know, I just watched the Baldur's Gate trailer. That looks pretty good. I mean... <laughs> I mean, I get that, but uh, but no one has ever pronounced Baylor as Baylor. And I know we just talked about the fact that I can't pronounce words before we started recording this episode, but I have turned on a college sporting event sometime in the last 30 years of my life, and it ain't Baylor, and, and I'm hey, just telling you now. And buddy, you're assuming I have. Uh, no, but I'm saying I assume through cultural osmosis that you weren't going to call it Yale next or or Havard or something weird like that. So I'm just getting it out of the way right now. If there's any weird colleges that play D1 sports that you're about to pronounce, just run them by me and I'll run them through NCAA 08 and make sure you're not saying it like a goof. It's Princetown, right? I'm getting that right? Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. You've nailed it. You've nailed it. So goes to Baylor University and gets his bachelor's in English. He's got to do a couple side quests first before he goes for that doctorate. Well, yeah, yeah. If you if you if you go in and decide I must be a doctor from this day forward, you definitely go get that degree that we associate with uh, with people that don't know what they want to get their degrees in. I Rob. So then he was like, "All right, doctor time," but he couldn't afford med school, so instead he takes the great value option and gets his master's in zoology. Okay, kind of doing an alternate run towards doctor, doing a doing a weird. No, this is like a pacifist run of of oblivion. And anyway, here comes uh, here comes degree skip. Okay, now we have time for donations. <laughs> All right, guys, now this makes no sense, but if on the first level of Mario, you grab the Yoshi and this block, and then you jump off into the ether in a way that's nowhere close to your goal, you will somehow confuse the game into skipping you to the warp zone. And that's what he thinks he's going to do with the, all right, if I combine my MFA in writing with a, with a zoology degree, the game will get confused and just give me a PhD in, uh, in actual human medicine. The admissions worker just has a stroke. It's, it's empirically proven. This is a combo that will shatter the brain of an admissions worker in their 40s. You just, it, it is the Konami code for, like, he cracked it. The Eld- Again, he's in there with the Eldritch Mysteries trying to find out. And up, up, down, down, left, right, BA, start. And ho, ho. It gets doctorate. Gets pulled. Karen gets a good long look at it, folds it up three times, passes it through the mail slot. You see it travel through the janitorial department, goes down into public works. <laughs> Makes its way back Meanwhile, to the Janet's dean. Janet's dead. Janet just passes out dead oh, yeah. the second she, t- she oh, lets yeah. go. Two gunshots back of the head. Suicide. So <laughs> to fund God his damn. master's in zoology, he works as a dishwasher selling. To be clear, he got a full-on degree in uh, English. English. And then he got another full-on degree in zoology. Yes. 
Yes. At this point, hasn't he gone to school as long as you should go to school to be a doctor? But that's the thing is you couldn't afford the actual doctor path. Okay, so so right around the 20s is when we're saying that we really figured out how to make school just dumb and not educational. He's living in a weird time frame because way before this, all you had to do to be a doctor was say, command, like, I'm declaring a divorce! And you could be a doctor. You just put a stick outside and you're doctor now. And then he hit a phase where you couldn't afford to be a doctor. Um, and then now all you have to do is go on Twitter and say you're a doctor long enough and people will forget that it's not true. So he lived in the worst timeline, I'd argue. He takes two years off of learning and saved up money while teaching at Decatur Baptist College in Decatur, Texas. Returning to college, he'd spend the next five years earning a PhD in biophysics and an MD from the University of Minnesota. Bio? <laughs> to be clear, no, no. say the words. Biophysics. One more time. Biophysics. Why does that sound like a portal level? It does sound like something Neil deGrasse Tyson says to be very pedantic. <laughs> I mean, this is some Mikel Foucault nonsense right here. Like, To be clear, he's financed a master's and a PhD off of a dishwashing job, selling pots and pans, and two years of a teacher's salary. Okay, so this is not necessarily the worst timeline. There is a there is a timeline in the mid-80s where you had to, or the, the early 2000s where you, Twitter didn't exist, so you couldn't just claim to be a doctor Exactly. Yet. And you still did have to pay for that degree using loans from Sally Mae that have bankrupted you and put you in destitution for the rest of your life. Okay. Yeah, he, this he, he did get that good, good where I could pay for college with a nickel and a hope. This guy's kids are definitely managing you and I's student loans every month. So, yeah, that sounds about right. At age 34, he joins the U.S. military. Weird call, dude that wants to keep people from dying in fires. Within two years, he begins his first groundbreaking mission. So let's paint the picture. In the spring of 1946, a, uh -oh. a B-17 bomber took off from a uh -oh. U.S. airstrip. Spencer? It climbed higher Spencer. and higher and higher until it reached 45,000 feet. Spencer, don't you do this to me. They were 15,000 feet what higher. What month is it? All I want to know is what month is it? <laughs> oh, it's spring. You know, it's probably like March. Okay, this is fine. They were 15,000 feet higher than the peaks of Everest and had done something B-17s really weren't meant for, they'd gone to the stratosphere. Spe Spencer, why are we going to space? Why are we going to space in a, in a B-52 bobber? The plane was stripped bare with neither bells nor whistles, and its engines were souped up to allow it such massive altitude clearance. We're doing Fast and the Furious, but for planes now. <laughs> Vin Diesel is flying this plane, and The Rock is his co-pilot. There's no way you can drift into space. I don't know why Sylvester Stallone's in that movie, but... <laughs> I was about to say, where did Stallone... You could have gone with a Statham. You could have used a Cockney or something. You could do Vin Diesel, which is just <laughs> which is just mental. This is a weird... <laughs> no, I guess that's Rocky again, too. Okay, it's I just see what Rocky. you're saying. When you try and do it, it just comes out as Rocky. It's a nuanced, it's a nuanced impression. In sub-zero temperatures, the crew clamored to stay warm. They'd be up at this altitude for a few hours. In the largely empty fuselage was a very, very risky payload. Dr. John Paul Stapp. Oh my, why, 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 why is he a supervillain? Is he going to, is he a human bomb? Are they trying to keep him We're about him to strange love this. <laughs> I was about, is he, is, is, we have to keep him below 60 <laughs> degrees or he explodes. <laughs> also, we have to be above 45,000 feet. Don't ask us questions. <laughs> Stapp was... 40,000 feet in the air, 
in an unpressurized aircraft. And he that was, seems unwise. And he was studying the effects of high-altitude flight. And he was his very own guinea pig. Um, now, I know for a fact that you're not supposed to do that, but I also wonder... W- w- now, normally when you have these fun guinea pig experiments, you have one person doing awful things to themselves in the privacy of their own home, like injecting themselves with yellow fever um, yeah. and, and poo water in the eyes. Yeah, or and the vomit a bunch of Yeah. Yeah, yeah, all of these things. But what you don't normally have is a willing group of accomplices that are flying the B-52 for you. (laughs) Who are also subjecting themselves to freezing cold temperatures hours at a time. This is a weird addition to the grift. The questions Stapp was attempting to answer were absolutely critical to the future of aviation. Could men actually survive for any length of time in extremely high altitudes? The answer was no. They crashed, they died. Uh, you've been listening to the Cock and Bull podcast. Oh, okay. I was about to say, um, we did put people in the space, so I'm assuming, yeah, we can get up there. Never heard of it. Could they fully okay, function physically and rationally? Now, I do remember um, that uh, in, in Independence Day, when- <laughs> Always a good start. <laughs> when the cocky white sidekick to our hero, Will Smith, took off his mask, he got all woozy-woozy, blacked out, and then the aliens shot him. Now, they were at lower altitudes- but uh, this has been Nathan recounts Independence Day scenes. Uh, uh, Spencer, what were I'm we talking about? I'm glad that paid off. I'm glad I was quiet for 20 seconds to let that one go. <laughs> Could they? Fu- you know, Spencer, they can't all they can't all hit. Okay, I'm just throwing it. <laughs> I'm throwing the, the the funny spaghetti at the wall over here. You've got notes, Nathan. All right, you've got you've got things to go off of. I'm just running on Nyquil and this sexy brain. Nathan threw five handfuls of darts at the board, and he's really hoping one of them is a. St- is a bullseye. I almost said strike. Oh, ah! oh, oh, okay. And how could they keep themselves from freezing, severely dehydrating, or becoming incapacitated by the bends, the deadly formation uh, of bubbles in the bloodstream? All right. For the first two, um, coat and Gatorade. I have solved his problem. Yeah. Very okay. That's coat. That's coat, <laughs> Gatorade. So give me my PhD now. Thank you very much. Any ideas on the um, third one though? On the bends, um, Radiohead. We'll workshop it. These were riddles Stamp was duly bound to solve, and he did, one by one. The riddle of the bends, however, proved an extremely tough nut to crack. But after see, see, (laughs) he all right. He couldn't figure it out. Doctor thought the one I couldn't (laughs) get was hard too. But after nearly sixty-five hours in the air, Captain Stamp had found an answer. If a pilot breathed pure oxygen for 30 minutes prior to takeoff, symptoms could be avoided almost entirely. And that was an enormous breakthrough. Now, does it oxygen in that concentration? Now, I don't remember a lot from Fight Club because I've tried to purge that movie from my brain for the toxic mess that it is. That being said, is it like inhaling pure oxygen make you high? You're going to get high one way or another up in that air. Up, up in that, All right, up- yeah, no, you're going to get that Rocky Mountain high that John Denver was talking about. And uh, then are you going to get actually high? This was an enormous breakthrough. So as far as man was concerned, the sky was now truly the limit. So this shoots him to the head of Aeromed Lab, an innovative team that had cranked out numerous influential discoveries throughout World War II. Things like the breathing apparatus, pressure suits, and of course the parachute uh, were all invented or upgraded at Aeromed Lab. Aeromed, so we're doing medicine and you invented the parachute. (laughs) You know, it's like I, I change out my brake pads, that's preventative maintenance. I feel like inventing the parachute is preventative medicine. 
<laughs> I mean, I I'll I'll let it I'll let it slide. The parachute. I'll let it slide. But it is a weird thing to me. That you know, I don't go down to Johns Hopkins and see them inventing like hoverboards or something like that. That seems a little bit outside of their scope. I mean, and when you're talking about aero medicine, I feel like parachutes one of the few things that's really just really overlaps in both. Touche. But also, you in, in a pinch, you could use it as a tourniquet. You really you could use it as several tourniquets. I would say. Lots of turn. Oh, a makeshift gurney. Ooh, that's a good. A hammock for a real big boy. A hammock for a small boy. I like. I like. I, I sleep in a king size bed sometimes, even if my wife isn't there. Just you know, I don't. I don't. It doesn't have to be perfectly fit. Sometimes bigger is good. By the way, uh, before we lose the thread, the parachute was invented by a Frenchie in the late 1700s. So. Speaking of parachutes, so though. they just modified the parachute. Exactly, they made the parachute filled with morphine or something like well, that. Well, they they made it better. They made it work more consistently. We'll say. Speaking of parachutes, this is actually what Aeromed Lab wanted him to work on next: human deceleration. Now, when you say that, I think now that the fact that we talked about parachutes makes me feel better. But the fact that he's like a biophysicist makes me think that he's gonna like try and fill these people with goofy gas that makes them not fall as fast and that <laughs> concerns me now we're because we've injected people with rocket fuel to try and make them go vroom and now i'm worried that you're going to inject them with like cement to try and make them go slow and i'm, I, I'm just concerned and that's how john paul stapp devised a spell scroll of feather fall now <laughs> this is essentially the study of finding out how many g's a human can endure so, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but for those of you who don't remember or haven't taken a physics class, G's are measurements of gravitational force. When you slam the brakes on your car, when a roller coaster takes a huge dip, that heaviness or weightlessness uh, is your acceleration reconciling with gravity. It's translating speed into a feeling of sometimes numerous pounds weighing down on your body. I'm familiar. Now, I felt the need to explain that because once... Uh, our, you know, uncle in his like mid fifties gave me a huge amount of shit for trying to explain G's when we were at Cedar Point. Um, he did apologize to me a year later <laughs> when he found out that G force <laughs> is a real thing. Uh, look, we've never accused our relatives of being men of science. No, 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 no. We have accused them of being men who will uh, mock you relentlessly, regardless of if they're right. So, also mild racist. We've accused them well, of that at times too. You know, Poe buddy's nerfed. So, G's are an important thing to understand. Modern roller coaster designers have to account for them, uh, lest they physics grandma to death. So, well, also those of us that play lots of roller coaster tycoon need to take them into account. Oh, of course. So, let's say that one G is you standing at sea level. That's just a regular amount of pressure, gravity. All, all that is our standard, one g. Does it does it bake in the, the the anxieties of life that are weighing down on me at every minute of the day? Because I feel like that alters my amount of g's quite significantly. The highest amount of g's exerted by any roller coaster is about six point three. That's only safe, mind you, because you endure it for a short amount of time, a matter of seconds. A fighter pilot has to handle about eight or nine, typically, and that's with special suits that assist the flow of blood. That's kind of the concern with large amounts of Gs. It's very easy for blood to pool up high or pool up down low or just not flow at all. I like my blood. You like I like blood going where it's supposed to go. I like everything having enough blood. I like a little blood everywhere. You know, you don't want all of it invested in one place. You want a diverse portfolio of no, blood. No, no, no. Diversification of your blood portfolio. So when he entered the test... It was assumed that the human body could withstand 18 Gs before death. Woof! 
aircraft cockpits. <laughs> that and and yeah, that's double what fighter that, pilots I'm about to say, that's do. That's double what you normally do. Jesus. Aircraft cockpits were built to withstand up to 18 Gs for exactly that reason. There's no sense in building them any stronger than a human body can endure, right? Yeah, I mean, that does that does track, yes. But Stapp's project was to understand whether 18 really was the limit. In April 1947, he arrived at a test strip in Los Angeles, a 2,000-foot-long sled track. Now, straddling this sled track was a car built together from welded pipes weighing some... 1,500 pounds, and stretching that, 15 feet long and 6 feet wide. That's one that's too long. That's too long. That's a clown car. That's that's <laughs> that's that's, that's, a, a, that's the clown shoe of cars a, at the very least. It's a dune buggy limo. <laughs> that is that is something that roams Mad Max territory. That's not a car by any traditional stretch of the imagination anymore. This is what the Gas King rides around in to flex on us. So, I mean, ex- yeah, yeah, very much, yeah. Now, the sled had room for a seat and, um, of course, four rockets strapped to the back. Well, why wouldn't you? Why not? So this is a it's a dune buggy, limo dune buggy with some turbo jets on the back, and it has a name. It's called the G-Wiz. Okay, all right. That is cartoonishly humorous, but come on. You're, you're making Master Blaster's car. Get creative with it. Now, our captain for this test was a... Stab! was a dummy by the name of Oscar Eightball. Oh, come on, you coward. I know, right? Put your money where you got in the plane when it went up high. Put your money where your mouth is. A crash test dummy ready to suffer the pain with none of the consequences. Stapp's first day on site, moseyed on up to the dummy, slapped it on the back, and said to the nearest scientist, quote, you can throw this away. I'm going to be the test subject. Yeah, there we go. Called That's it. my boy. Called it. Now, naturally, this was mildly more dangerous than sending a dude in a plane with a manned crew. So they all turned to Stapp and said, no, uh-uh. <laughs> no. <laughs> Cowards! Cowards again! It's Oscar's turn in the rocket car. So Stapp, honoring the rule of dibs, conceded. <laughs> the first tests could be done on Oscar, just to make sure all the kinks were out anyway. But I'm getting in next, he said. So on test one... They don't learned, kink shame. Don't don't kink shame this this experiment. I don't I don't like it. On test one, they learned that the G Wiz could not be constrained by the brakes of mortal men. It went clean <laughs> off the track and careened far into the desert before coming to a rest. <laughs> just just way out there doing a vision quest. So for test two, they had to tune up those brakes for sure. Test two, they strap in Oscar Eight Ball with a quote light seat belt. <laughs> But but why even? And sent him off at 150 miles an hour. That's quite fast. The brakes locked up, and rather than gradually bringing him down, uh, they slammed to quite a sudden halt. The stop produced a clean 30 Gs. Oh, 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 that ain't good. Oscar neatly severed the seatbelt, and yeah. in compliance with Newton's second law, quote, sallied forth. <laughs> Kept going through the window. <laughs> He sailed some 700 feet, crashing through an inch-thick wooden windscreen, and Good then came to God. a halt. His rubber Good. face was found near the windscreen, ripped off like a sheet of paper. Did they show that to Stapp and go, this, this, you moron? 35 tests, and eight months later, Stapp did what we knew he would do and climbed Get into that, that damn car seat. Got in that <laughs> car seat. So I don't know what number's appropriate here. 
but 35 still seems like far too few. It Oh, it, it's it's yeah. way too low for something that has ejected Oscar 700 feet when, on test two. Yeah, when when test two involves clean severing, and uh, I mean, yeah, I, I would definitely want a larger sample size before before I'd feel comfortable getting behind that wheel. Some sources say 35, others say 32. It's all too few. <laughs> no, no, we're talking orders of magnitude too small. So he straps in on December 10th, 1947. He was approached by a doctor with anesthetics, but Stapp declined because he what? wanted to learn how he would react psychologically to high rates of acceleration and deceleration. Well, because if the whole point is to teach like how high people can go, like you're not gonna you're not gonna be giving all of your pilots smack before you send them up <laughs> in the sky. Like that seems to kind of defeat the purpose. That's the fifth failure on the runway this week. <laughs> I don't understand, General. We're giving them the oh, best can- morphine we can buy. Also, why is there so much Alice in Chains playing? This is getting really creepy. Is this a trend? (laughs) They hit the engines, and he takes off at 90 miles an hour, taking on 10 Gs. 10 Gs? At 90 miles an hour? I guess from zero to 90? Yes. Okay, all right. More importantly- I'm 90 miles an hour. (laughs) There's not only the acceleration, but the harder part is the deceleration, when they slam the brakes. So he slams into the harness, which I'm assuming has been upgraded from a light seatbelt. Yeah, from from a, from a what sounds like garrot wire that they used on old Oscar. Just splits in twain and goes on Just, forth. I don't know why the cheese string didn't uh, didn't <laughs> stop him. That's a, that's a, It's a nice clean cut, though, yeah. They said flex tape will stop any brakes. <laughs> And within seconds, he's crushed against the seat as it grinds to a halt. So now he walks out of this Did they one. at least get him, like, memory foam or something like that? <laughs> no, it, it's like it, it's about as hard as the seat of the Batman. So oh, now he walks out of this one with a few sore muscles and a small side effect of taking on ten times the force of gravity. Okay. <laughs> so what, so he pulled how many, so how many Gs did he pull? Ten? Ten. And they thought up to that point that, like, they thought 18 would kill you. Right. But they usually only did nine. Correct. So he's already right. pushed the limit a little bit. I mean, and he was excited. He was stoked. But he knew they had to go farther. He said it was an easy first ride. And everyone said, first. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. John. <laughs> this was- well, the whole point. We're, we're pushing the limits, baby. Come on. This was a fun bonus one. You weren't going to keep doing it, right? I've got a need for speed. <laughs> so he gets in again, and they blast him off even harder. So within a year, <laughs> he was taken off at 150 miles an hour and stopping, oh. stopping in as little as 19 feet. Oh, my God. That's like the length of the pod cave. In doing so, 150 miles per hour, coming to a halt in 19 feet, withstood 35 Gs. Oh. My. God. We have doubled what we thought would kill a person. (laughs) His injuries in this test, uh, they start to rack up. Headaches, concussions, fractured ribs and wrists, uh, and a hemorrhaged retina. I mean, yeah, that one sounds like I just I'm just imagining the like uh, a sexy lady wolf walks by a <laughs> eyes every time he hits the brakes. Like, holy <laughs> hell. Dental fillings were coming out of his skull. That's how fast he was going. <laughs> so they ask if he wants to stop. And he says the men at the mahogany desks thought the human body would never take 18. 
and we're doing twice that with no sweat. (laughs) All the bones in your body are goo at this point. (laughs) While the progress they had made was staggering, it turns out they weren't being super forthcoming about their tests. See, when Stamp's commanding officer discovered that he had been the one in the chair, he ordered them to stop immediately. You don't want to kill the guy doing the research! See, I can't find a source for this claim, but one article believed that this was because the officer thought that he wouldn't get promoted if Stapp got himself killed. Well, yeah! That's failure to supervise! So our, I mean, that's a, a, <laughs> come on! So our mad lad, you know, he, he did as he was told, and of course I'm lying to you, he got a hold of some chimpanzees and kept live testing. Oh, God, why? Why the chimps, though? They didn't sign up for this. In these tests, he fired off the chimps the same way he did humans. He realized that one of the keys to survival was not the acceleration, but making sure the pilot didn't collide with any other solid object in the cockpit. So. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that, that jives. I imagine the broken wrist was like whatever he had to hold or use to hit the brakes. <laughs> he just whacked his wrist. So with an upgraded harness... Stapp decided to see if it cleared human trials. Without permission, he conducted another human trial at higher and higher speeds. This time oh, facing course. forward and with the new harness in place. That has oh, been tested okay. on now, the chip. On the chip? Well, if Bobo's good, I mean, why not? And did I say one more trial? I meant 26 more trials. That is significantly more trials! Of course, more volunteers lined up to give it a whirl, but no matter the qualifications, Stapp- Well, yeah, because you built a thrill ride at this point! (laughs) This might as well be the story of T-Boon Six Flags! He always said the first test had to be him. He always had to be the first test subject on any new rig- Because it doesn't make any sense. It's like it's completely anathema to what he should be doing. I respect his ability to not want to get somebody else killed on his design, but come on, dude. It was for this reason that he cracked more ribs, broke his wrist yet again, and lost six more fillings. Dentists hate this guy. Learn this one easy trick. Stop it, 36 (laughs) G. October. This is this is a new interesting to- tip. All right, so you know how you don't want to tie your your tooth to a string, Sally, and slam the door to uh to wrench it loose. Well, here's what we're gonna do. Uncle Scott's gonna put you in the rocket mobile, and we're gonna shoot your ass off at 150 miles an hour, and that baby's coming right out. Uncle Scott, is isn't it cheaper just to go to the dentist in this economy? <laughs> <laughs> also, they put fluoride in that shit. October 14th, 1947, Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier in an experimental Bell X-1 going Mach 1.05, or 805 miles an hour. That is rather quick. How fast did he stop, though? I bet it was more than 19 feet, the coward! It's a (laughs) very... As though it had happened right before his very eyes, Stapp knew the game had just got a bit harder. So, in this new era of supersonic speed, he prepared a new rocket sled with a better harness, capable of faster speeds and harder stops. So meet the new rocket sled, the Sonic Wind Number 1. Okay, much better name than the G-Wiz. Can we agree? Much better. It sounds like a Sonic the Hedgehog villain. Of course, moving locations made it harder to hide the manned tests. I mean, probably. Just a bunch of guys like tiptoe, do, 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 just trying to sneak by with the rocket sled. Yeah. 
So this puppy used a track with water brakes and a more sophisticated set of data trackers, including high-speed cameras, to, to track just how fucked up Stapp looked at any given moment. <laughs> I want to see that slow-mo video, those slow-mo guys' videos of his fillings flying out. To get the eyes off his back, he rolled out a new test dummy, Sierra Sam. All right, he is definitely, I don't know what, if, his, if his technology is improving, but I know his naming conventions are. Once Sam proved his mettle in the limit-breaking tests, Stapp readied a new test, simulating the wind blast of ejecting from a supersonic jet. Oh, no, no, I've seen what happens to Goose. Don't do that. That's right. He's about to find out whether or not you can survive ejecting from a jet that is moving faster than the speed of sound. Wouldn't you wait for the jet to slow down, Scott? In March of 1954. Is this guy's first name Scott, or did I just start putting Scott at the front of his name because his last name is Stapp, and I imagine the Creed lead singer is the one doing all these experiments? You did, you did conflate that. John Paul okay. Stapp. Oh, John Paul Stapp, yes, because I remember there was a Sartre goof that I skipped in the beginning that I didn't choose to do, but okay. And here it is so, now. Okay, all right. And there, yeah, there it is. It's there. So now you've got both the Creed goof and the Sartre goof out, and, uh, and that's a two-for-one deal, as they call it in the biz. In March of 1954, a 44-year-old Stapp mounted the Sonic Wind number one. <laughs> that's If you're too old to be a running back in the NFL, you should be too old to be subjecting yourself to 37 Gs. For its first manned flight. The sled took off at 421 miles per hour. So close. So, so close. <laughs> and Stapp became the fastest man on Earth. I'm sure Chuck wasn't happy. That wasn't enough, though. These well, new of course not. This man has, this man has a condition. <laughs> These new supersonic flights were going to push speeds much higher than that. So he popped those wrists back in, poured some plaster on his cracked ribs, and no. geared up for more. He's just eating cement at this point, just hoping it bonds everything back together. <laughs> Nine months later, on December 10th, he A settled beautiful in. baby was born. <laughs> he settled in to the sonic wind number one. With the jets rammed up on this experiment, 50% faster than the last. Wait, 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 wait. So is that close to like 600 miles an hour? Yeah. Yes. Good God! When asked if he had any concerns... Stapp said, I might go blind. <laughs> <laughs> From just, just, just pure ball, because your balls are too big and they're, they're crushing <laughs> all the other. That's why it's, you have a weird center of gravity. He fired off at 632 miles an hour. Jesus. And when the sled came to a halt, Stapp did not get up. Oh, no. The launch alone was 20 Gs. But when he came to a stop... Woof. In just one and a half seconds, that was the equivalent of 46.2 Gs. That's a couple. That's a couple Gs. Now, for an instant. We're, weren't we assuming for a while that 18 was the max? We were. And we shattered that one. We blew past that. I get it. But at some point, there has to be a ceiling. For an instant, Stapp's body weighed 7,700 pounds. Oh, it's a hefty boy. <laughs> That's, That's a, a thick boy. It's a dense lad. As scientists, a, medics... Good Lord. As scientists, medics, and military personnel clamored to the sled, they saw Stapp slumped over in the seat. But he was managing a half smile. <laughs> and he had ejaculated <laughs> all over. 
the inside of the sled because this was all a kink. It has it's the only thing that explains the level of just maniacal commitment to this. This had to be a kink. He, Holy cow. And he and he turned to those those scientists, no eyes left, and said, I fought God for his knowledge. <laughs> No, instead he mumbled, quote, I can't see. Yeah, 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 that jives. His eyes were flooded with blood. He was rushed to the hospital where doctors surveyed him. His lungs had collapsed, and the high-speed camera showed that in the moment of the stop, his eyes had bulged from the sockets. So it is a full-on awooga moment. Had his, we got there. Had his eyes not been clenched shut, they would have just <laughs> sallied forth. <laughs> God damn it. His vision was returning throughout the day, though. And within the oh. first hour of his arrival, colleagues returned to find him eating a hearty lunch in the cafeteria. Hold hold on. He's not dead. Nope. Not only is he not dead, he's eaten lunch. This guy weighed 7,000 pounds. Almost eight. And is just kicking it. Though it had returned to, quote, normal levels, according to the doctors, Stamp's vision never would fully recover. No, no, I don't think having your eyeballs ejected out of your skull is in the uh, warranty for the human body. It's not with it's not within normal operating parameters. You're gonna have a weird fuzz after that. Which is why it sounds like he'll need to check in with today's sponsor, Warby Parker, purveyor of fine spectacles and prescription <laughs> contacts, or your money back. This this is what it was. We took two months off because we really needed to get that Warby deal in place, and man, it paid. Paid off. Enter coupon code seven seven zero zero for twelve cents off your next order of ninety dollars or more. Again, that's Rocketman at WarbyParker.com. So, Stapp is an overnight sensation. Quote: The fastest man alive. He seems more interested in the stop than he does in the go fast. <laughs> that's very true, and we can only imagine the blowback he got from his superiors. But the job was done. While he would go on to ride a similar air-powered sled as a novelty stunt through the bayou, I'm guessing, uh, <laughs> he would never... Just imagine doing, doing it with, like, a crocodile Dundee hat and a vest on. Just... A Boy! Six Flags stunt show. <laughs> I mean, basically. After the show, watch Mr. Stab strap himself to the Top Thrill Dragster. <laughs> That's right, he's just gonna kind of sit on the front of it. <laughs> He's got to go right on, right in the front. He doesn't even care. Look at that. He doesn't even feel this shit anymore. We're going to vice grip his hands to the to the seat, but he doesn't want a harness. <laughs> Stepper, uh, he retired. He never, he never again rode a rocket sled after that. Well, I mean, what else do you have to prove? <laughs> Stepper, you hit the pinnacle. He retired from the Air Force at the rank of colonel, but not before advancing to the head of several more safety projects. This time, though, he was done being the test subject. His career would move on to NASA, where, as far as we know, he was just another man at a mahogany desk. His research on safety harnesses and human acceleration paved the way for countless innovations in travel, including influencing the 1966 Highway Safety Act and mandating that cars in the U.S. be manufactured with seatbelts, because uh, I think he's living proof that a good enough one will do the job. <laughs> I mean, for sure, for sure. Now, he was not running the rocket sled into anything, which I do think changes the game a little bit, but I stand by it. No, yeah, but he, some he, of the stops he made. Him and, Ralph, 
Him and Ralph Nader are are stop seatbelt champions of America, some, for sure. Some of those stops he made probably do emulate a high-speed car crash. but I mean, actually, yeah, that actually makes sense. His innovations made for lower mortality rates in aviation, automobiles, and even prepared the world for the scientific juju that is space travel. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, guys, 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 guys. Um, I, this was a tradition that we used to engage in that I stopped engaging in for a while, and I now <laughs> don't remember why, because it, it never, ever gets old. You can Google this guy and yep. get the slow-mo guy camera pictures of him just awooking. Holy shit. The ones you're probably seeing when you Google are going to be that supersonic one. The one where he went blind. Oh, I would imagine, because why would you put anything less than your best? Exactly. Put your best foot forward. And now, uh, in the year of our Ford 2020, we've got rockets that blast luxury cars into space and do, like, 1080 nose bones when they land themselves. Stapp somehow made it to 89 years old and died peacefully in his New Mexico home in 1999. November 13th, too. Just a hair shy of the year 2000. A weird... A weird flex. I know he wanted to see it. So bad. <laughs> That's not all. So bad. It's not all of his legacy, by the way. He also coined Stapp's Law. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. I have not. It's similar to Murphy's Law. Do you know that one? I am aware of that one. Isn't that the one that says everything that'll go bad will? Yes. Stapp's Law is a popularized version of Murphy's Law. Uh, quote, the universal aptitude for ineptitude makes any human accomplishment an incredible miracle. Oh, so this is the sort of douchebaggy thing that douchebags say. Yeah, exactly. So you've been listening to the Cock and Bull podcast. Special thanks to Driftless Pony Club for the theme song There Were Buffalo in the Ark off the album Cholera. For those of you who don't know, you can find links to our other shows down in the episode descriptions, and you can also find hey. our social media there as well. We use those to plug little clips of the latest episodes, so if you're a fan of the show, you can always go there and share those with all your friends, and if you don't have any friends, you can rate and review us on iTunes. That always helps us look a little more it credible. Does, it does. It does make it look like we're not doing a grift here, and we need those numbers up or war we will not renew our, sub our, our subscription. <laughs> They're going to cancel us any day now, please. The Warby Parker man uh, is outside my house waiting for his check. And guys, I'm just telling you, I need help. That's so, cr Nathan, we're five hours apart. He's also outside my window. Oh, no. Oh, no. He's slapping that bat in his palm like a gangster. <laughs> he just dragged his thumb across his throat. What the fuck? People don't do that anymore. Actually, I think my version is just a cardboard cutout because it hasn't moved in a couple hours. So he may be he may be putting the real resources into your house. Oh, thank God. Oh, that's my window. All right. Okay. So, um, Nathan, you got anything for me? I've got absolutely nothing. I'm dying on the inside uh, and the outside at this point. And so I'm, I'm just going to curl back up in a hole and die. But you've, you've, you've extracted my funny juices for this hour. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll see you guys back here uh, next week. <laughs> I know, right? That's a good bit, right? Bitch. That's a good right. Yeah, I like that one. That I'm going to start using one. that bit from now on. That's a good one. It's a good bit.